Morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. If you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus as we continue our series in and through the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 2, this morning, Exodus 2. When I was growing up as a young boy, growing to my grandmother's house, this is my dad's mother. She lived in a little town in Mississippi called Yazoo City, Mississippi. Yazoo City was a place that is noted for being the hometown of the comedian. You remember the comedian Jerry Clower, Yazoo City native. You remember uh, Good Old Boy, the book, Good Old Boy, the author Willie Morris was from Yazoo City. Now, my grandmother lived down this long and windy road, and so at Christmas, at Thanksgiving, when we'd go and see her, and other times, uh, my dad would be driving, and the thing about this road was is it had these rolling hills there at the, sort of the gateway of the Mississippi Delta, and you would, you would come into her house, and you, if you got the speed just right when you were coming to the to the crest of the hill you would get a little bit of air time as you would go down the hill and it would take your stomach away and then after the hills you would have these hairpin turns that you would go back and forth almost making u-turns and if you were following this road you would think to yourself where are we headed to but we knew we knew the certainty of the destination Every time I'd get to my grandmother's house, my, my stomach would be back about two miles on that, uh, th- that road before us there. And in many ways, I'm reminded of that journey as I think about the journey that we've collectively been on the last 10 months. Not only personally, but collectively within our own country and with our church family, there are times where we did not see the hills that were in front of us. And, and in many ways, those hills, as we've gone down them, they've, they've taken our breath away collectively. There have been some hairpin turns that literally we could not see five minutes in front of us nor five feet before us, having to trust that there is a destination on the journey that we're traveling, even if we cannot discern where the destination is. We have to trust that he's guiding. He's guiding us in the hairpin turns. He's guiding us over the the potholes in the road of the journey that we are on. Now, there are some people that would tell you that the Christian life is is a blissful journey immune to all trials, immune to all difficulties, that on the journey of the Christian life, there are mile markers after mile markers of just blessing upon blessing upon blessing, and that to be a follower of Jesus is is to miss the potholes. It's to miss the hairpin turns. It is a straight shot of glory, a straight shot of no suffering, no pain, and I'm here to tell you, they're lying to you. Maybe the lie is out of ignorance. Maybe the lie is more pernicious and is deceitful. But the Christian life is is a journey that is full of trials, is full of difficulties. And what holds us in the midst of the journey is, is no matter the hill, no matter the turns, we can trust that there is one who is guiding our journey. The sovereign God who is providentially directing everything that we experience in life. Now, we look to God's word for a reminder, a glorious reminder of this truth. And we find it in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, I'll remind you of the context of Exodus 2. We, we pick up the story of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is an arch villain, not only of Moses, not only of God's people, 
But God himself, he, he is the human Voldemort who is met to us in Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2, who stands as this great villain, the, the greatest villain that we meet, uh, human villain that we meet in God's word so far, who stands in direct opposition to God's plan. He says, the Israelites are too many. I will make them my slave. That doesn't slow down this growth because God has promised in Genesis chapter 12 that he's going to make them a great nation. So he says, hey, I have a heinous edict that is going to kill these Israelites here and I'm going to go through their birth and I'm going to tell the Hebrew midwives to kill the firstborn baby boys of the Hebrew women that are having children here. And these two Hebrew women that we met last week in Exodus chapter 1, they said, we are not going to bow down to you, Pharaoh. He said, hey, you think you you can thwart my plans? You think you can one-up the most powerful person in the empire? If I see that these Hebrews are a political threat to me, an economic threat to me, I will stomp them out. And so this genocidal command comes from the palace of Pharaoh himself, where he says, take the Hebrew boys and throw them into the Nile. Drown each and every one of them. It is there that we begin in Exodus chapter 2 to see the implications for one family of Pharaoh's diabolical design. In Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we read, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. Verse 6, when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, again, this is Moses' mother, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. It's the most unlikely of beginnings, isn't it? Uh, This is the most unlikely of, of circumstances for the nation of Israel's most famous leader to be born in the midst of. Notice what we don't read in Exodus chapter 2. Notice that as we come to the text, we read of a mother and a father, but they're cloaked in anonymity. We know not their names from Exodus 2, 1 through 10. But what we do know is what Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, decides is important for us to know, that there was a man who is his dad, who is of the house of Levi, who uh, bears a child with a wife who is a Levite woman. So we have the descendants of of the tribe of Levi that are going to be the parents of Moses. Now we're going to know from Exodus chapter 6 what their parents' names are, what Moses' parents' names are. It's not going to be a mystery to us throughout the book of Exodus. We're going to know that it's Jochebed, 
We're going to know the dad is Amram. But here, we know not their names, but we are given this detail of the tribe they come from. And I think this is significant. It's easy to miss it. But what we discover here in Exodus chapter 2 is the importance of Moses coming from the tribe of Levi. You have Jacob in the book of Genesis who have 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel have one tribe, the tribe of Levi, that is going to be the tribe where the priest of the nation of Israel come from. You couldn't be a priest from 11 other tribes, but you could be a priest if you came from the tribe of Levi. So Moses is the leadoff hitter for the priestly work of the Israelites in Egypt and far beyond. It's almost as if we're seeing right here the importance of his priestly work that we're going to discover all throughout the book of Exodus. You know what a priest does? All throughout the Old Testament, do you know what a priest does? A a priest is a mediator between sinful humans and a holy God. So the, the, the sinful Israelites can't just go to God and speak to him directly. They have to have a mediator. They have to have one who stands in between. So God speaks to the mediator, and the mediator speaks to the people. The people speak to the mediator, and the mediator speaks to God. And so Moses, all throughout the book of Exodus, is going to be that in-between. He's going to be that mediator. We know of this. Why? God gives Moses the words to write, and he writes them down on Mount Sinai, and we have what? The Ten Commandments. God comes to Moses, and he says, I need you to build a tent in the wilderness. It's going to be called the tabernacle. You know why we know that? Because God told it to Moses. So God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to the people. Now, the people are going to speak to Moses, and Moses is going to speak to the people. And so you wonder here, who is the person speaking for us today? Who are the Moses in our midst who, who take our requests and bring them to a holy God? And how is a holy God speaking to us, his sinful people? And you know what the answer is? You know who the priests are? There is one priest, the great high priest, the perfect, complete, new Moses, and that is God's own son. So when we read that Moses comes from the tribe of Levi, we need to be grateful that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, but one whom in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So approach the throne of God with boldness so that you may receive help in your time of need. Are you struggling with sin this morning? Do you know this morning that you have a direct line to God? That you don't have to go through me? You know, sometimes people will come up to me and we're sort of just like laughing back and forth with each other and, and, and to interact with the preachers. You've got to have some good preacher jokes. And one of the good preacher jokes I always hear is somebody says, hey, preacher, you need to pray for me because I know your prayers get to the front of the line before my prayers do. And I'm like, ha, ha, ha. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. And we go on with the morning. But, you know, what, we, what, what that person is saying is wrong, but they're joking about it. And I get that. And we all get this. But we need to be reminded That no person's prayers get to the front of the line before your prayers do because you, child of God, have a direct line to the Father through the Son, Jesus. You've got a direct line. When you call upon God on prayer, there's no busy lines. 
When you call upon God in prayer, there's no secretary that puts your number in, 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 in a queue that waits for God the Father to be able to receive this. So you're struggling with sin? Go to him in prayer. You have a direct line. You're struggling with doubt in the midst of the difficulty of COVID and other complications of life? You don't have to wait. Go to him in prayer. You, my friend, have a direct line. You're struggling with a son or a daughter who's living in a foreign land and you're like the father who is, who's, who's on the porch looking into the distant horizon, hoping, praying that that son, that daughter is coming home. You don't have to go to someone for that prayer request to be heard by God. You have a direct line through the son, Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, who has lived a perfect life died a saving death and was raised on the third day and is seated at the right-hand throne of the Father. And anytime we bow our knees to him and pray, the Father hears our requests because we have a mediator that you, me, we as children of God have a direct line to praise God. Moses was from the tribe of Levi. There are other details that we need to hear in this passage right here. Notice the backstory of Jochebed and Amram. They hide Moses for three months. After three months, this mom and this father, they realize the excruciating truth that their son isn't safe to be raised under the nose of Pharaoh. You can imagine them going back and forth saying, maybe, maybe we can keep him. Maybe the henchmen of Pharaoh won't sniff out that we're hiding this child here and that Pharaoh's edict would, would not come to our son here. You could imagine them going back and forth, but they come to this place where they realize the excruciating truth that their parents at times would realize. And, and this mom has this courage, this dad has this courage to say, it is better for Moses to be raised by another family prayerfully out of the, the eye and the purview of Pharaoh and the harm that Pharaoh seeks to cause. So they trust God to protect their son when they realize they, in their own strength, can't protect him. So they concoct a plan. And that plan is for this mother to, to build, a, a, to weave, to construct this ark. I don't use that accidentally. We see that the case, the, the word is basket in verse 3. Underline that word in verse 3. Think about that word in verse 3. It's a Hebrew word that in the original language is tava is the word. You know, there's only one other place in all of the Bible that it's used. Only one other section of scripture. And you know where it is? Genesis 6, Genesis 7, Genesis 8. God comes to Noah and says, build a tava. It's translated in English, an ark. Moses' mother builds a basket. It is a teva. It is an ark. Noah builds an ark as a sign of judgment for the sinfulness of all of humanity here. God is going to use Moses, protect him in an ark, and Moses is going to grow to show the judgment of God to Pharaoh. Just as God uses a teva in Noah's life to be the father of the new creation, the recreation of humanity, so Moses is going to be the, the father of God's precious children, the Israelites. Both Noah, both Moses are going to be saved by Tavah. It's easy for us to have these kind of like romantic 
thoughts about this. We have the sort of Sunday school backgrounds, vacation Bible school, flannographs that go with this. But this, this isn't a floating bassinet as much as this is a, a place of security, not because of Jochebed's uh, unique artistry and craft, but rather it is God's providential care for Moses that's going to lead even the current of the Nile. He floats to the reeds in the worst possible place that he could. You can imagine Miriam. I think it's Miriam. We don't know for sure. It's one of the daughters and sisters of Moses that is there by the river. You can imagine this mother, Jochebed, who who backs away. You can imagine her overwhelmed with the emotional heft of the moment. She turns her eyes saying, I don't know what's going to happen to my child. But the the sister stays at the riverbed and watches what happens as, as the tava, the ark, the basket gets stuck in the reeds. And there's Pharaoh's daughter who sees the child. It's the worst person who could see the child. Because what if Pharaoh's daughter sees him and takes this child up out of the water, takes him right to the palace of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh enacts the the death of this child in this moment? This is the worst place that you could go to. This is the worst place that he could end up, right? Wrong. Here we discover Pharaoh's own daughter is going to subvert her father's plans. She looks into the bank of the river and has pity, has compassion. It's almost as if she sees this child and says, can we keep him? The sister of Moses is watching from a distance. She runs and says, now you know that's a Hebrew baby and you know that a Hebrew mother needs to care for that Hebrew baby, right? And the Pharaoh's daughter says, well, you're exactly right. The irony of all things is that Pharaoh's daughter employs Moses' own mother to nurse him and pays her to do so. Do you see the providential hand of God working all of these quote-unquote coincidences out for Moses' good and for his glory? It is a story that is strange. It is a story that is compelling. It is a story that from a human standpoint is completely unlikely. If you're keeping up at home, get this straight. Pharaoh decrees to drown all the male babies in the Nile. Moses' parents decide to protect him by sending him into the river, that river of death, hoping that he would be found and cared for out of the scrutiny of Pharaoh's henchmen, out of the scrutiny of Pharaoh's purview. And here, they try to get Moses as far away from Pharaoh's influence as possible, only for him to land in the proverbial back door of the palace. Pharaoh has a plan to use the Nile as an instrument of death. And God in his sovereignty reverses it and makes it a river of life. Pharaoh, the most important, most powerful ruler in all of the land, is thwarted three times by three different sets of women. The the two Hebrew midwives in chapter 1 say, we're not going to do what you said to do. Uh, We have Pharaoh's uh, being thwarted by Moses' mother who says, I'm going to hide my child. And Pharaoh's own daughter thwarts the plans, these genocidal plans of Pharaoh. Never once in these 10 verses do you see Miriam the sister saying, God, help my brother. 
Never once in this story do you see the mother of Moses saying, God, help my brother. Never once in this story do you have sort of this third-person omniscient narrator saying, all throughout the story we see God's handiwork caring. But what we discover is, is while the name of God is missing in these verses, the very presence of God floods the entire story of God's son uh, or God's uh, providential selection of Moses in this story here. And this is a wonderful truth. It's a wonderful truth for us to hold on to because it is a reminder that God sovereignly works in and through all that he allows. That he uses Pharaoh's Eden for his good. Moses is good. God's glory. That he uses the, the call of death from Pharaoh for the people's good, the Israelites' good, and for his glory. And it's a reminder, sort of an Old Testament reminder and illustration. So often the Old Testament is of that wonderful passage in Romans 8, 28, for he works all things together for those that love him are called according to his purpose. And we see it here that, that God works even through the evil plans of the villains of the Old Testament. That God works even through the events that are horrible and heinous and, and all, of their, all of their conniving here. God is still working. He works even in the events of life that knock the wind out of our breath. He works even in the twists and the turns. He works even in the hills and in the valleys. If there's no part of God's plan that cannot assume and bring together even the worst things that occur. And this supremely is shown true. And we need to hold on to this as Christians, that God doesn't work our salvation in spite of his son's death, but he works our salvation through and in his son's death. The worst event in human history, the death of the perfect son of God on a cruel course Roman cross, that event is redeemed in this powerful way for the salvation of you and me, all of us who would trust him as Savior and Lord. This afternoon, some of you are going to watch football. Tonight, the Buccaneers are playing the Saints. I'm a Saints fan. Been for years. You got the battle of the aged, glorious quarterbacks. Tom Brady, 43 years old. Drew Brees, 42 years old. They're facing off here, Buccaneers and the Saints. One thing that I'm 100% sure of is Monday through Saturday, if you were to watch a Saints practice, if you were to watch a Buccaneers practice, that Brady is going to be wearing what color jersey in practice? A red jersey. Breeze is going to be wearing what color jersey? A red jersey. You know what a red jersey means in the NFL practice field? It means you can hit the wide receivers. You can tackle the running backs. If a tight end comes across the middle, you can tackle them, but the people that are wearing the red jerseys, don't touch them. You don't touch Brady on Wednesday so he can stand and play on Sunday. You don't tackle Breeze on Tuesday so he can stand and play on Sunday. And there's some people that would sell you the lie that if you're a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, God puts a red jersey on you Monday through Sunday. And he says to all the events and circumstances of life, you could touch anybody else, but that person's off limits. No, 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 no. 
As followers of Jesus Christ, you know, I know, the experience of our life tells us that God allows difficulty to come our way. He allows trials to come our way. He allows painful events in our life, and he uses them to shape us and to mold us. He uses them for our good and his glory. Now, sometimes we don't know how all of that works out. Oftentimes we don't. The outset of sort of the COVID shutdown, Danielle and I decided, uh, along with our boys, that we were going to jump into a hobby that we have never done before. We were going to put a puzzle together. Do you know what I've never said to my wife of 21 years? I've never said, hey, how about we put a puzzle together for fun? I've never said that. Never said that. I haven't put a puzzle together since I was six or seven years old. In first grade or second grade, I, I just—I mean, the last thing that's relaxing to me is about uh, putting something together like that. I didn't want to do it, but we were in the midst of COVID. Saw some other friends of ours that were doing this, and we said, "Well, hey, if we're going to put a puzzle together, we got to make this puzzle count at least." And so we started into a puzzle. We started putting the puzzle together, and it came out as Wrigley Field, the hollow grounds of Wrigley Field. Okay, so we started this in March, and we left it to the side. We lost interest pretty quickly. The boys, and I would include myself, along with our three boys, we sort of started it, and when it was pretty easy to put together, it was fun. And then for months, sports sort of came back into uh, existence, and so we were distracted. And you know when we finished this puzzle? We started in March. You know when we finished it? A week ago, you'd be proud to know. (laughs) So that's how long it takes for the Eldridge family to put a thousand-piece puzzle together. It takes us 10 months to do that. Danielle said, hey, I'm not going to put this puzzle together for you guys, so you got to be beside me if we do it. So there was a rule that, uh, that one of the Eldridge boys or myself had to be beside her for this to get done. Now, I've learned a couple things about puzzle making right here. I, I learned that when you're putting together a puzzle, not of 50, not of 100, not of 500, but you got a 1,000 pieces there, that there are going to be some pieces of the puzzle that easily you're able to see where they go. You're able to put the corners and start with the corners and it makes sense and you can see how the puzzle pieces fit together. You can put the infield together and you begin to see how some of them fit together. You can put the scoreboards together and see how this fits together. You begin to see some of the players and their numbers, see how that fits together. But there are hundreds of pieces in the puzzle that look like just absolute blurs. You can't see how they fit together. And you know what's absolutely essential? is the finished portrait on the box. To be able to see how it comes together allows you to have a strategy to see where these pieces fit together. You see, there were times where I would just see blues and reds colliding together in this sort of blur. And I said to myself, I don't see any place where this goes here. But when I was able to look at those colors and to examine it to the finished product, then I said, oh, here's how it fits together. And in your life and in my life, there are going to be pieces of the puzzle that we say, God, I don't know where this fits. And we need to be reminded only God has access to the finished product, the puzzle and portrait of our life. But take heart that if God can take 
Pharaoh's edict of death, if he can take the courageous, faithful action of Moses' mother to place her child before his care, if he can take all of these puzzle pieces that don't seem to fit together, how much more so can he do that in your life and in my life? If we can see God's providential hand directing the very current of the Nile to bring salvation to a fearful mother's son in the very palace that would order his death, take heart today. God is not directing your life in spite of your circumstances. God is not directing your life in spite of your circumstances. He is directing your life in and through the midst of your circumstances. Even when you have a puzzle piece that doesn't seem to fit. It was true then. And it's true today. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we hold on, that you are sovereign and that you are good and that there is nothing that comes our way that is outside the providential guiding of your hand, that even the current of the Nile answers to you, the sovereign God. Even the most powerful people of a land must answer ultimately to you. So there is nothing that comes our way that takes you by surprise, There's no calendar day in our life that we wake up and you're informed of. You never turn your head. You never get distracted from the trials and the turns and the hills of our life. May we trust you. Even when we cannot discern the the colors of the puzzle pieces of our life and how they fit into your grand plan. We trust you. We follow you. We hold on to your love and your goodness. Give us that faith even today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.